Chapter Twenty Two of the Enchanted Barn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Enchanted Barn by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Twenty Two. Shirley's sense of direction had always been keen. Even as a child, she could tell her way home when others were lost. It was some minutes, however, before she suddenly became aware that the car was being driven in an entirely different direction from the place she had just left Mr. Barnard. For a moment she looked around puzzled, thinking the man was merely taking another way around. But a glance back where the white dome of the capital loomed palace-like above the city made her sure that something was wrong. She looked at the buildings they were passing, at the names of the streets. F Street? They had not been on that before. These stores and tall buildings were all new to her eyes. Down there at the end of the vista was a great building, all columns. Was that the treasury, and were they merely seeing it from another angle? It was all very confusing, but the time was short. Why had the man not taken the shorter way? She looked at her small wrist-watch anxiously, and watched eagerly for the end of the street. But before the great building was reached, the car suddenly curved around a corner to the right, one block, a turn to the left, another turn, a confusion of new names and streets, New York Avenue, Connecticut Avenue, Thomas Circle. The names spun by so fast she could read but few of them, and though she saw she wanted to remember that she might weave them into her next postal. She opened her bag, fumbled for her little silver pencil in the pocket of her coat, and scribbled down the names she could read as she passed, on the back of the bundle of postal cards, and without looking at her writing. She did not wish to miss a single sight. Here were rows of homes, pleasant and palatial, some of them even cozy. The broad avenues were enchanting, the park spaces, the lavish scattering of noble statues. But the time was hastening by, and they were going farther and farther from the station, and from the direction of the offices where she had been. She twisted her neck once more, and the capital dome loomed soft and blended in the distance. A thought of alarm leaped into her mind. She leaned forward and spoke to the driver. "'You understood, didn't you, that I am to return to the office where you took me with the gentleman?' The man nodded. "'All right, lady. Yes, lady.' And the car rushed on, leaping out upon the beautiful way and disclosing new beauties ahead. For a few minutes more Shirley was distracted from her anxiety in wondering whether the great buildings on her right belonged to any of the embassies or not. And then, as the car swerved and plunged into another street, and darted into a less thickly populated district, with trees and vacant lots, almost like the country, alarm arose once more, and she looked wildly back, and tried to see the signs, but they were going faster still now upon a wide empty road, past stretches of park, with winding drives and charming views, and a great stone bridge to the right, arching over a deep ravine below, a railroad crossing it. There were deer parks, fenced with high wire, and filled with pretty creatures. Everything went by so fast that Shirley hardly realized that something really must be wrong, before she seemed to be in the midst of a strange world aloof. "'I am sure you have made a mistake,' the girl's clear voice cut through the driving wind as they rushed along. "'I must go back right away to that office from which you brought me. I must go at once, or I shall be too late for my train. The gentleman will be very angry.' She spoke in the tone that always brought instant obedience from the employees around the office building at home. But the driver was stolid. He scarcely stirred in his seat to turn toward her. His thick voice was brought back to her on the breeze. 
No, lady. It's all right, lady. I add my orders, lady. You needn't to worry. I get you there plenty time. A wild fear seized Shirley, and her heart lifted itself as was its habit to God. Oh, my father, take care of me. Help me. Show me what to do, she cried. Thoughts rushed through her brain as fast as the car rushed over the ground. What was she up against? Was this man crazy or bad? Was he perhaps trying to kidnap her? What for? She shuddered to look the thought in the face. Or was it the notes? She remembered the men in the office and what they had said about keeping still and spying enemies. But perhaps she was mistaken. Maybe this man was only stupid, and it would all come out right in a few minutes. But no, she must not wait for anything like that. She must take no chance. The notes were in her keeping. She must put them where they would be safe. No telling how soon she would be overpowered and searched, if that was what they were after. She must hide them, and she must think of some way to send word to Mr. Barnard before it was too late. No telling what moment they would turn from the main road, and she be hidden far from human habitation. She must work fast. What could she do? Scream to the next passer-by? No, for the car was going too fast for that to do any good, and the houses up this way seemed all to be isolated, and few people about. There were houses on ahead beyond the park. She must have something ready to throw out when they came to them. Oh, God, help me think what to do, she prayed again. And then, looking down at her bag, she saw the postal cards. Just the thing. Quickly she scribbled, still holding her hand within the bag, so that her movements were not noticeable. Help! Quick! Being carried off! Auto! Connecticut Ave! Park! Deer! Stone Bridge! Phone Mr. Clegg! Don't tell Mother! Shirley. She turned the card over, drew a line through her mother's name, and wrote Carol's in its place. Stealthily, she slipped the card up her sleeve, dropped her hand carelessly over the side of the car for a moment, let the card flutter from her fingers, and wrote another. She had written three cards and dropped them in front of houses before it suddenly occurred to her that even if these cards should be picked up and mailed, it would be some time before they reached their destination, and far too late for help to reach her in time. Her heart suddenly went down in a swooning sickness, and her breath almost went from her. Her head was reeling, and all the time she was trying to tell herself that she was exaggerating this thing, that probably the man would slow up, or something, and would all be explained. Yes, he was slowing up, but for what? It was in another lonely spot, and out from the bushes there appeared, as if by magic, another man, a queer-looking man with a heavy mustache that looked as if it didn't belong to him. He stood alertly waiting for the car, and sprang into the front seat without waiting for it to stop, or even glancing back at her, and the car shot forward again with great leaps. Shirley dropped out the two cards together that she had just written, and leaned forward, touching the newcomer on the arm. "'Won't you please make this driver understand that he is taking me to the wrong place?' she said with a pleasant smile. "'I must get back to an office two or three blocks away from the Treasury Building somewhere. I must turn back at once, or I shall miss my appointment and be late for my train. It is quite important. Tell him, please. I will pay him well if he will get me back at once.' The stranger turned with an oily smile. "'That's all right, miss. He isn't making any mistake.' We're taking you right to Secretary Baker's country home. He sent for your man, Mr. Uh, what's his name? I forget. Barnard? Oh, yes. He sent for Mr. Barnard to come out there, sent his private car down for him, and Mr. Barnard, he left orders we should go after you and bring you along. It's something they want to change in those notes you was taking. 
There was a mistake, and the secretary he wanted to look after the matter himself. Shirley sat back with a sudden feeling of weakness and a fear she might faint, although she had never done such a thing in her life. She was not deceived for an instant now, although she saw at once that she must not let the man know it. The idea that Secretary Baker would pause in the midst of his multiplicity of duties to look into the details of a small article of manufacture was ridiculous. It was equally impossible that Mr. Barnard would have sent strangers after her and let her be carried off in this queer way. He had been most particular that she should be looked after carefully. She was horribly to blame that she had allowed herself to be carried back at all until Mr. Barnard himself appeared, and yet was she... That surely had been the page from the office who came with the message. Well, never mind. She was in for it now, and she must do her best while there was any chance to do anything. She must drop all those postals somehow, and she must hide those notes somewhere, and perhaps write some others, fake ones. What should she do first? Father, help me, show me. Oh, don't let me lose the notes. Please take care of me. Again and again her heart prayed, as her hand worked stealthily in her bag, while she tried to put a pleasant smile upon her face, and pretend she was still deceived, leaning forward and speaking to the strange man once more. "'Is Secretary Baker's home much farther from here?' she asked, feeling her lips draw stiffly in the frozen smile she forced. "'Will it take long?' "'About ten minutes,' the man answered graciously, with a peculiar look toward the driver. "'Nice view around here.' he added affably, with a leering look of admiration toward her. Shirley's heart stood still with new fear, but she managed to make her white lips smile again and murmur, Charming! Then she leaned back again and fussed around in her bag, ostentatiously bringing out a clean handkerchief, though she really had been detaching the pages which contained the notes from her loose-leaf notebook. There were not many of them, for she always wrote closely in small characters. But where should she hide them? pull the lining away from the edge of her bag and slip them inside? No, for the bag would be the first place they would likely search, and she could not poke the lining back so smoothly that it would not show. If she should try to drop the tiny pages down her neck inside her blouse, the men would very likely see her. Did she try to slip the leaves down under the linen robe that lay over her lap and put them inside her shoe? She was wearing plain little black pumps, and the pages would easily go in the soles, three or four in each. Once in, they would be well hidden, and they would not rattle and give notice of their presence. But, oh, what a terrible risk if anything should happen to knock off her shoe, or if they should try to search her. Still, she must take some risk, and this was the safest risk at hand. She must try it, and then write out some fake notes, giving false numbers and sizes, and other phraseology. Or stay, wasn't there already something written in that book that would answer? Some specifications she had written down for the Tillman Brooks Company? Yes, she was sure. It wasn't at all for the same articles, nor the same measurements, but only an expert would know that. She leaned down quite naturally to pick up her handkerchief, and deftly managed to get five small leaves slipped into her right shoe. It occurred to her that she must keep her keepers deceived, so she asked once more in a gracious tone, "'Would it trouble you any to mail a card for me as soon as possible after we arrive? "'I am afraid my mother will be worried about my delay, and she isn't well. "'I suppose they have a post office out this way.' "'Sure, miss,' said the man again with another leering smile "'that made her resolve to have no further conversation than was absolutely necessary. "'She took out her fountain pen and hurriedly wrote, "'D. 
detained longer than I expected. May not get back tonight. S.H. And handed the card to the man. He took it and turned it over, all too evidently reading it, and put it in his pocket. Shirley felt that she had made an impression of innocence by the move, which so far was good. She put away her fountain pen deliberately, and managed in doing so to manipulate the rest of the leaves of notes into her left shoe. Somehow that gave her a little confidence, and she sat back and began to wonder if there was anything more she could do. Those dropped postals were worse than useless, of course. Why had she not written an appeal to whoever picked them up? Suiting the action to the thought, she wrote another postal card. Her stock was getting low. There were but two more left. For Christ's sake, send the police to help me. I am being carried off by two strange men, Shirley Hollister. She marked out the address on the other side and wrote, To whoever picks this up. She flooded it to the breeze cautiously, but her heart sank as she realized how little likelihood there was of its being picked up for days, perhaps. For who would stop in a car to notice a bit of paper on the road? And there seemed to be but few pedestrians. If she only had something larger, more attractive. She glanced at her belongings, and suddenly remembered the book she had brought with her to read, one of the new novels from the cottage, a goodly-sized volume in a bright red cover. The very thing! With a cautious glance at her keepers, she took up the book as if to read, and opening it at the fly-leaf, began to write surreptitiously, much the same message that had been on her last postal, signing her name and home address, and giving her employer's address. Her heart was beating wildly when she had finished. She was trying to think just how she should use this last bit of ammunition to the best advantage. Should she just drop it on the road, quietly? if only there was some way to fasten the pages open, so her message would be read. Her handkerchief, of course. She folded it cornerwise and slipped it in across the pages, so that the book would fall open at the fly-leaf, knotting the ends on the back of the cover. Every moment had to be cautious, and she must remember to keep her attitude of reading, with the printed pages covering the handkerchief. It seemed hours that it took her. Her fingers trembled so. If it had not been for the rushing noise of wind and car, she would not have dared so much undiscovered. But apparently her captors were satisfied that she still believed their story about going to Secretary Baker's country house, for they seemed mainly occupied in watching to see if they were pursued, casting anxious glances back now and then, but scarcely noticing her at all. Shirley had noticed two or three times when a car had passed them that the men both leaned down to do something at their feet to the machinery of the car. Were they afraid of being recognized? Would this perhaps give her a chance to fling her book out where it would be seen by people in an oncoming car? Oh, if she but had the strength and skill to fling it into a car! But of course that was impossible without attracting the attention of the two men. Nevertheless, she must try what she could do. She lifted her eyes to the road ahead, and lo, a big car was bearing down upon them. She had almost despaired of meeting any more, for the road was growing more and more lonely, and they must have come many miles. As soon as the two men in the front of her sighted the car, they seemed to settle in their seats and draw their hats down a little farther over their eyes. The same trouble seemed to develop with the machinery at their feet that Shirley had noticed before, and they bobbed and ducked and seemed to be wholly engrossed with their own affairs. Shirley's heart was beating so fast that it seemed as though it would suffocate her, and her hand seemed powerless as it lay innocently holding the closed book with the knotted handkerchief turned down out of sight. But she was girding herself, nerving herself for one great last effort, and praying to be guided. 
The big car came on swiftly and was about to pass, when Shirley half rose and hurled her book straight at it, and then sank back in her seat with a fearful terror upon her, closing her eyes for one brief second, not daring to watch the results of her act, if there were to be any results. The men in the front seat suddenly straightened up and looked around. "'What's the matter?' growled the man who had got in last, in quite a different tone from any he had used before. "'What are you trying to put over on us?' Shirley gasped and caught at her self-control. "'I've dropped my book,' she stammered out wildly. "'Could you stop long enough to pick it up? It was borrowed,' she ended sweetly, as if by inspiration, and wondering at the steadiness of her tone, when blood was pounding so in her throat and ears, and everything was black before her. Perhaps, oh, perhaps they would stop, and she could cry out to the people for help. The man rose up in his seat and looked back. Shirley cast one frightened glance back, too, and saw in that brief second that the other car had stopped, and someone was standing up and looking back. "'Hell no!' said her captor briefly, ducking down in the seat. "'Let her out!' he howled to the driver, and the car broke into a galloping streak, the wheels hardly seeming to touch the ground, the tonneau bounding and swaying this way and that. Shirley had all she could do to keep in her seat. At one moment she thought how easy it would be to spring from the car and lie still in a little heap at the roadside. But there were the notes. She must not abandon her trust, even for so fearful an escape from her captors. Suddenly, without warning, they turned a sharp curve and struck into a rough, almost unbroken road into the woods, and the thick growth seemed to close in behind them and shut them out from the world. Shirley shut her eyes and prayed. End of chapter 22